Thank you. Uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Dave and I are old friends. He's, I first met him down in Texas. He can't help that. But uh, we've had a lot of good, good times, a lot of good life together. My name's Jack, son of an alcoholic. Come from Louisville, Kentucky. My sobriety date's the 21st day of August of 1962, which, which means I don't get a book. Them old timers from Kansas City snuck in here. I, I like them always at that old timers meeting this afternoon. They call me boy. <laughs> I like people call me boy. And then they gave all them other things to the newcomers. I've never understood that, really. They, uh, you think they'd save that one prescription of that grapevine for old timers. Hey, it's a funny outfit. In the animal kingdom, they devour the young. <laughs> You're new and young and AA, they applaud you and pat you on the back, get you to pick up ashtrays and wash coffee cups and tell you how great you're doing. And if you keep it up, you stay sober and be like some of them other people and just hang in there. And you get old and you do that, and they say, look at that son of a bitch trying to run everything around here. <laughs> so you can't win. I do have a home group. It's the South Louisville Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. and meets on Wednesday night in Louisville. It's an open speaker meeting. I've been a member there for about 32 years. I hope you're ever down that way. You stop by and see us. I think it's the finest AA home group in the world. <clears throat> if you don't have a home group, I suggest you get one. If you got one and don't think yours is the finest, then my advice to you is just stay there. Don't go screw up somebody else's. <laughs> Probably right where you belong. The hotel gave me an announcement. I don't know why the hell they give me an announcement. I'm not a chairman or something. I'm a speaker, but anyway, I'll make it for them. The Capitol Plaza has asked that in case of fire in this room, the Alanons will remain seated until the AAs have... <laughs> I didn't have nothing to do with that. That's that's a hotel. I got one of those Al Nons over there, so I have to be careful. It's uh, Kay and I are glad to be here, and we certainly appreciate Clark inviting us, and we're certainly grateful and appreciative to the good Lord that we were able to come. Gay's been awful sick this year, and we've had to cancel most everything we had to do, and trying to get her better. And uh, but uh, things are looking up a little bit for her, and so. We were able to make it, and uh, we really appreciate the invitation and, and the opportunity that we're able to come. 
That's my lovely wife sitting over there. Her name is Gay, and she's a 34-year member of the Al-Anon family group. I like Al-Anon. My, let me see what time I start. I don't want you all blaming all them damn countdowns on me. That's right. You ever go, come to these things, they have all them countdowns, and you... Later on, you're out in the lobby, and somebody said, Boy, there's a windy bastard in there. Uh, my sponsor sent Gate Alnon. I, I had a. I've been coming to A for a year and, and dating her, and, uh, and I told my old sponsor in Louisville that I was getting real serious about a lady, and I was telling him up at our hospital meeting on Tuesday night, and he said to me, he said, you bring her up here. I want to talk to her. I said, what the hell I want to bring her up here for? He said, I told you to bring her up here. I said, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, I brought her up there, and he sent her to Alnon. He said, if you're going to live with him and marry him, and you need a program of your own. And, and uh, she had lived prior to that with an alcoholic, and so... She knew a lot about the disease, and, and he knew that would be beneficial to her and uh, beneficial to our marriage and how right he was. It, it certainly has been. Uh, with my 35 years or longer in AA and her 34 years now, it's just been a beautiful relationship. We've had a, a good time through this sobriety life. I never married until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel inferior telling you that. I'm serious. You don't hear many speakers that haven't been married when they were drunk. And uh, I ride in cars with guys I sponsor, and I listen to them, and I'm, I get humble. I sponsor one guy that says he had jars of peanut butter lasted longer than some of his wives. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't have any. I don't, I don't really know why. I just never, never wanted one, I guess. And, uh, and so uh, when Gay and I got married, it was my first trip and her second, and uh, uh, she had a daughter, and so I became a father, and she, daughter had two children, I became grandfather, and the girls had a little boy, and now I'm a great-grandfather, so I'm a f father and grandfather and great-grandfather and never had kids, so. <laughs> That's a neat trick. But those outlines are well thought of and respected now where I come from and absolutely necessary. Some of them are strange, but <laughs> we had a lady down there that belonged to her Alnon group. She was married to some guy he never would quit drinking. And he finally died. And when he died she had him cremated. And she mixed his ashes with some marijuana and smoked him. <laughs> She went, she went all over the country telling people that's the first time in 25 years that guy ever made her feel good. <laughs> so you, you, have, you have some outlines like that. that uh, but anyway, 
I really enjoyed that old-timers meeting today. That was something to hear that and listen to it. People ask you sometimes if things have changed, and in a way, you know, they, everything's changed in 35 years. I've been in A, the streets, and they, they got doing away with streetcars and got buses, and, you know, and they got internets and all that stuff anymore. So everything changes, and I call it anonymous. is going to change to the degree of the type of people you get coming to A, and, but not the interactive part of Alcoholics Anonymous. It'll never change, not going to change, don't need change. And uh, I think it's alive and well where I come from. And there's always seemingly like the old guard who are there to say enough's enough of something, you know, and uh, put a stop to it. And finally the people who started didn't want to be a part of it anyway. It used to be real popular to be an and of some sort. We were talking about that in the old timers meeting. You've got to be an alcoholic and uh, something, and that's kind of died away. A lot of people used to be cross-addicted, and I think they quit making wood, so they <laughs> The weirdest one I ever met was some guy had come to our group was poly-addicted. I thought, who in the hell ever would want to have sex with a parrot? <laughs> but I guess it took all kinds. I tell people I'm an alcoholic and the abused adult spouse of an Al-Anon. <laughs> so you can use that for an answer. But those old guys that I grew up with in AA, and I'm just like them in a way, I believe in the basic simplistic things of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I'm satisfied in my own mind what makes our program work is our 12 steps, and what, what makes our program work is people's ability to identify with each other. I think if there's one word in the English language that makes AA successful, it's called identification. And if you ever took that out of a program, we'd be dead too, but you can't have that, and I don't know any way to get it, and I don't know any way to replace it, and I don't know any way to supplement it. You know, you can't have anything that's AA-oriented. You can only have AA. Alcoholics Anonymous says to the newcomer, let me tell you about me and hope you identify. And when you identify, you're on your road, on the road to recovery. And that's what we have to offer each other, and I think that's what we'll always have to offer each other, and that's what that's what will keep us alive and well. And some of those old guys are dead and gone now, but uh, I guarantee you they were they were the people that made this program what it was and cemented it together initially and uh, left it here for us to protect. And, and I think we do a pretty good job of it. Some of my old heroes and Alcoholics Anonymous are dead. I guess my favorite was old wine, old Joe Leach. I loved wine old Joe. He was the smartest man I ever met, and he wasn't very well educated. I remember when they came out with those 20 questions. You have all seen those 20 questions that ask you if you're an alcoholic. I think they were written by a psychologist at John Hopkins University. <clears throat> when wine old Joe saw them, he got madder in hell. He wanted to know what the hell that psychologist was doing asking alcoholics if they were alcoholics. He said, hey, hey, I'll tear those things up and write their own questions asking you if you're alcoholic. So Joe wrote his own. And I remember one of them is, have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? You ever been arrested while in jail? 
Have you mastered the art of puking out of a moving vehicle without it blowing back in? <laughs> you ever been run over by your own car while driving? <laughs> and Joe, Joe thought those kind of questions were important, and, uh, and so did I, because when you're up here asking them, you all are going, yeah, yeah, you identify. And thank God for those kind of guys. I was not a, a willing participant in Alcoholics Anonymous when I got here, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but uh, thank God I stayed, and thank God they tolerated me and let me stay. And thank God I was uh, able to have an opportunity to meet some people who were very knowledgeable about Alcoholics Anonymous, long-term sober, and great simplistic values in their life. They didn't lecture you or interpret things for you. They just told you all about themselves and their, their simple little definitions of things. I remember one time talking to Paul Keeper from up in St. Louis. Paul was another dear friend of mine. A lot of y'all knew Paul. He was, he was as good as he get. And Paul and I were talking one day a, about a spiritual awakening, and Paul said a spiritual awakening is a simple process that when you begin to realize somebody lives on this planet besides you. And Paul said, anybody that ever had a spiritual awakening recognizes that other people, Almighty God, live here with you, and you have to learn to live accordingly. And, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. And uh, those were the kind of things that, they, that I learned from them and they taught me. I appreciate that lady for the hearing impaired. If, if we could just get somebody for the people that can hear and won't listen. <laughs> Well, we'd have a room full in, wouldn't we? <laughs> it's been a great conference. I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it, all the speakers. And Ernie, last night I met for the first time. I've met Richard before, and the two Alamine ladies were great. Ernie's from down, down in Georgia. He's traveled down there when I had the alcohol and drug program for the Old Inn Railroad. And Ernie and I have some mutual friends from over at Peachford Hospital, and so nice reminiscent about that. But it's been a great convention. and. Certainly a lot of wonderful speakers, and Mildred will be here in the morning, and if you've never heard Mildred, you've missed half your AA life, so you better be here. You'll hear a good story you'll ever hear from a lady that's very active in AA and very sincere about what she has to say, so you don't want to miss that. But uh, I was 33 years old when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I'd never heard of AA. I uh, don't believe AA would have helped me before I was 33 and got here. And I say that because I was the type of a person that didn't have the ability to learn from other people. I think that's a tremendous asset if you're new and you have that, the ability to learn from others. When somebody's willing to share their experience and strength and hope with you, you can absorb something from it for your own personal benefit. But the willingness to learn from others, I just didn't have it. And uh, I don't think Alcoholics Anonymous would have helped me because I was one of those people that just had to learn everything the hard way and do it myself. I was sharing that story one time or talking with a doctor friend of mine, and he, and he said there was a lot of people that can't learn from others. And he loved to tell a story about a, a lady that had a poly parrot, and it was a filthy mouth bird, cussed constantly, and she couldn't do anything with it, and she got mad at hell at the parrot all the time. And one day she lost her temper and got angry with the parrot and grabbed him and threw him in a freezer. And after the bird was in there for a few minutes, she opened the door to let him out, and the parrot was shaking and 
The lady said, I get so disgusted with you and your filthy mouth. When will you ever learn to quit cussing? And the parrot said, I'll never cuss again as long as I live. He said, but tell me, what in the hell did that turkey do? <laughs> Well, the moral of the story was that the, the parrot learned from the turkey. <clears throat> and I know there's a lot of new people in this room tonight, and I'm, I'm sure there's some parrots in here. I'm sure there's some of you that have the capabilities to learn from other people, and you'll do well. <laughs> I'm also sure there's some turkeys in here. <laughs> there's some of you that'll have to skin you, wrap you, and freeze your ass before you'll ever learn anything. <laughs> And I want you to know you're looking at the biggest turkey of them all. I just couldn't do it. I did real well in life till I was about 15, 16 years old. I didn't know anything different about anything. I was born in, in, and brought up in a good Catholic home, and I had one older brother and two younger sisters, and my life was pretty routine up to that time. I went to a great school, and, and I did well in school, and uh, I just did normal routine things that normal kids do. World War II was still going on. It was just about over, and I got a job at uh, a Gulf service station in Louisville, Kentucky at night. And for the first time in my life, I was away from home, and I saw the outside world out there, and I was about to be introduced into things I didn't know anything about, but I fell in love with them once I found them. Uh, World War II was just about over, but gasoline was still rationed, and out at that service station at nighttime, the people would bring in coupons at the end of the month that they didn't use them all and give them to us. And what that meant was we sent those coupons off to Washington. We had a lot of gasoline in those tanks you could sell without ration coupons. Everything was rationed. You couldn't buy good whiskey, good beer. You couldn't buy good cigarettes. You know, the people that ran the drug stores, the liquor stores, and the beer joints, they had a little bit of it, but it wasn't for over-the-counter sale. But once we got that gasoline we could sell without those coupons, we became very popular. And those guys that owned those liquor stores and gas stations, they brought them big cars down there, and we'd fill them with gas, and they left good whiskey and good beer there. Old Fitzgerald, Jack Daniels, Budweiser, and popular beer up home was Sterling. And we put that booze back in a storeroom, and we either drank it or sold it, and that's where I learned to drink. And there was a guy that ran a drugstore across the street, a big model drugstore, and he didn't have any gasoline, but he had good cigarettes. Lucky's, Camels, Chesterfields, you couldn't buy them over the counter. He'd bring them over there, we'd fill those cars with gas, he'd leave the cigarettes there, we'd put them in a storeroom, and we either smoked them or sold them. That's where I learned to smoke. And there were some girls out there that didn't have any gasoline. <laughs> You'll have to draw your own conclusions about that part of the story. But I was a 16-year-old kid with his life just completely changed and turned around. I fell in love with that environment and that atmosphere. I was drinking booze, smoking cigarettes, having sex. I had money in my pocket, and uh, I was on the road to, to just great expectations. I loved every minute about that kind of stuff. My brother had gone off, finished high school, and gone off to uh, General Motors Tech Institute. He'd gotten a scholarship up there. My two sisters were still at home. My mother had passed away, and my father and I and two sisters lived together. My dad became 
violently angry at me for what I was doing and who I was with and how long I was staying, you know, and, and I didn't much give a damn what he got mad about. I was a sophomore at a Catholic high school, and the principal sent for me one day and asked me not to come back. He said, I don't want you here. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm here to tell you this. You seemingly have absolutely no respect for authority anymore. You certainly are not able to put any discipline in your life. You've changed completely. You've got a stinking attitude, and I don't want you here in this high school. Go somewhere else and finish your high school education. And like any good practicing alcoholic, which I wasn't at that time, but I had all the potentials, somebody in AA said one time they never had a drink in the fourth grade, but they think they could have used one. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the way I was. You know, I probably could have used one up there. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I said, I don't care. I don't give a damn about you and your school. I go somewhere else. I finished my high school education in a vocational school. And my father and I went round and around over this, and... You know, and I told him the same thing. Leave me alone, old man. I don't, I'm doing what I want to do, and you get out of my life and leave me alone. And my father was a very, very strong man. My, my dad could have been the founder of Al-Anon. I mean, he really was. He, he believed if you dance to the music, you pay the fiddler. I'll not pay for you. And my father also believed that anything that you do, you have to answer and be responsible for. You know? And he just... I mean, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and made amends to my father, I never had to ask him what I owed him. I knew what that was. It was nothing. He never came up with a nickel for any of the trouble I ever got into in my life. He just didn't believe in it. And later on, as I gradually got worse, and I asked him one time, I said, Did you ever pray for me? He said, Every night. Every night of your life, I asked God to help you find some way to help yourself. I never said God help him. But I said, God, please help him find some way to help himself. And my father was smart enough to know that in most cases, and there are exceptions, that Almighty God works through people. And somewhere out there in that world was there somebody that ought to have known something about me, because he sure the hell didn't. And I really didn't get into that much trouble for the next four years of my life until I was about 20 years old. And, and I don't recall having any problem that drunkenness was involved in. I was still running around, staying out all night, doing all those things you do, you know, enjoying every minute of it, and, and at war with my father, <clears throat> and really not any trouble due to the alcohol itself. When I was 20 years old, all that changed. I began to get in trouble from drinking alcohol. I was arrested for public intoxication and disorderly conduct, and I began to launch that career of alcoholism with a practicing alcoholic constantly repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. You know, and I, I was arrested for the first time when I was 20, put in jail for disorderly conduct and public intoxication. I didn't have anybody to call but my father, <coughs> and I should have known better than to call him. But I dropped that dime in the phone, and I dialed, and he answered, and I can hear him as if it was tonight. I said, Daddy... You know, we're that way. Jail changes our opinion of people. It always has. You can go down there to some joint tonight and list the... Has that thing been off? <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. You ever get up behind one of these things get talking and say, Can you hear me back there? Don't ever do that. 
Some guy will get up and say, no, and a fellow up front will say, I'll change places with you. I can hear him. <laughs> I dropped that dime on that phone, and my dad answered, and I said, Daddy, you know. And like I said, them jails change your opinion to people. You go out at night, listen to some guy talk about that old bitch he lives with in some bar. Lock him up. He'll call, and she'll answer, and he'll say, Honey... Yeah, it's, just, it's just our nature. I dropped that dime in, dialed him. He answered, and I said, Daddy? He said, what do you want? I said, I'm in jail. He said, why in the hell did you call me? I said, well, I thought you might come down here and get me out. Oh, he said, I wouldn't worry about that if I was you. <laughs> well, I was worried about it. He said, as smart as you are? He said, oh, I'm sure if you figure a way to get in, you'll figure a way to get out. <laughs> and he hung up. And when I got out, I ran into him somewhere along the way. And he said to me, he said, I've never been in jail. I understand they give you one phone call. If I was you, I wouldn't waste it. <laughs> well, I never called him anymore. He didn't seem to have a handle on the problem. But I was there many, many times, many, many times. I'd taken a job with the Louisville National Railroad Company up in Louisville, working out in their shops, and I didn't have any respect for that company or for that job. I was just one of those guys that did what he wanted to do when he got damn good and ready to do it. You know, self-will run riot, defiant at the world, as the book talks about. And, and, and nothing seemed to matter to me. Just go on and do what you want to do whenever you want to do it. And as I, I grew older, I progressively got worse, you know, and, uh, it only took me 13 years to advance from a fairly decent, respectable kid at the age of 20 years old till I was a skid row wino living on the city streets of Louisville at the age of 33, actually at the age of 31. I'd lost all tolerance for booze. You know, you, and you, naturally you can't stay drunk 365 days a year, but every day that I was away from that crowd and away from those people and away from doing what they were doing, I was the most miserable human being on earth. The book says I became restless, irritable, and discontented. That's good enough for me. That's exactly what happened in my life. I became very restless, very, <clears throat> very restless, very irritable, and very discontented, and a very unhappy human being when I was not in that crowd doing what they were doing with those people. And I did not have the ability to control the alcohol or where it took me. I was powerless over the amount I drank. I, had, I could no longer drink with guarantees but I was totally and completely powerless over where booze took me. I had to go where it was and with who, wherever it, who it was with. And when I was away for whatever period of time, I was just miserable as hell, and I wanted to be back in. And I stayed long enough to get everybody off my back till I got right back into it again. And I finally went from, you know, from a nice house and home with my father. My two sisters had gotten married, and my dad and I lived together. And it was a compatible thing when Booz was out of the picture. He finally asked me to get out of there, and I left, and I got me a one-room, a nice apartment. I left. I couldn't pay the rent. I got me a nice one-room place. I couldn't pay the rent, and I left, and I went to live in a flop house, and I finally wound up living on the city streets alone. And the interesting thing about my life, and some of us were talking about that today, back in that era and period of time in Louisville, Kentucky, nobody knew anything about alcoholism. There was no such thing as a doctor treating you, a hospital allowing you in. You know, 
it was just the blind leading the blind, and, and, and you, did, you had absolutely no idea what the hell was wrong with you. You had absolutely no idea what the solution to people like me was. And all the people I encountered in my lifetime, and very learned men, and very respectable men in communities, a monsignor in the Catholic Church, a medical doctor who was our family doctor, my, the people I worked for at the LNN Railroad, my father, a policeman who was a friend of our families, a judge who was a friend of our families, a lawyer who was a good friend of our families. And all of these people, the only advice they had for me was what happened to people like me if I didn't quit drinking. You don't thank God our society doesn't have to endure that today. With the education and the things you see on television and that, you have to at least know. It's very difficult to walk around in the world today ignorant of what's wrong with you. But the solution those people apparently thought they had of me was of absolutely no value to me. If you don't quit drinking, you're going to hell, said the Monsignor. If you don't quit drinking, you're going to die, says the doctor. If you don't quit drinking, you're going to the unemployment line, said the old man. If you don't quit drinking, get out of my house, said my father. If you don't quit drinking, you're going to jail, said the policeman. And if you don't quit drinking, you're going to the penitentiary, says the judge. And nobody, nobody ever addressed the fact of what happens to people like me when I quit drinking. My biggest problem was when I quit drinking. I did not know how to live in a world without drinking. I never remember spending a happy, joyous, and free day in society when I wasn't drinking. So the only solution I had to me was in a bottle, and it was the damn thing that was killing me. But I assure you, those people didn't know anything about what was wrong with me. And even as I left and went and finally eventually wound up in Skid Row, I never met anybody that knew anything about me. And as bitter and resentful and hateful as I became in, those, in that type of environment, I never met anybody that knew anything about me. But I do know tonight, after finding Alcoholics Anonymous, I feel like I was one of the luckiest and most blessed alcoholics alive. And I say that because I never married and I never had any children, and I went to live in a city gutter. And I've seen, oh, so many of you who go out and get a gutter and bring it home with you. I've seen some of the stinkingest, filthiest gutters running down through the middle of the living room of some of the finest homes in the country. I've seen alcoholics in their sick minds, honestly to God believing, the people who loved them the most were in some way responsible for what they'd become. And I've seen alcoholics teach their families how to be lonely and afraid and insecure, and you do it right in the middle of your own living room. Trust me when I tell you, the easiest life in the world is to be single, childless, and go to the city gutters than it is to marry and have families and take a gutter home with you. And God knew you teach them well. People are taught so well to be lonely and afraid and insecure right in the middle of your own homes. I never had to experience that, thank God. Living on Skid Row is no big deal. You know, the only thing I can tell you about Skid Row, it takes away your emotions. You don't have it anymore. It takes away your ability to believe that alcohol is a great benefactor. No matter how much you drink, nothing makes you believe anything will ever be any better. You certainly live in a world of hopelessness. And if you ever visit a Skid Row area, which I have many times, that's one thing you see in the eyes of those people. 
you have a lot of homeless people today, and I, I don't know that much about them, but back then that wasn't in existence. And all the people you saw on Skid Row, if there's one thing you saw in their faces, was that sense of hopelessness. You absolutely knew that every day would be like today for the rest of your life. And I think Webster says when you possess hope, you sincerely believe you'll succeed tomorrow where you failed today. And there is no hope on Skid Row. In Greek mythology, it says that at the gates of hell stands a, a three-headed dog called Cerebus. And Cerebus says, once you enter the gates of hell, you will never again be allowed to return to the land of hope. And that was before Alcoholics Anonymous came along. And Alcoholics Anonymous says, I don't care how many times you've been to the gates of hell, and I don't care how far in you went when you got there, now, once you found us, once you've come to this place, you are immediately returned to the land of hope. Because if you knew when you get to your first day A meeting, <laughs> that sense of hopelessness will leave as long as you can see and feel the people that are in this room. Now, but it's a miserable way to live. I live behind a hardware store there around 4th and Central where Churchill Downs Racetrack is. Uh, it's not an interesting place, but it was a hardware store. You used to go out there with cardboard boxes. That Cardboard's a great insulator. It keeps rain and cold off of you. If you're new, you might want to write that down. <laughs> might come in handy someday. But one thing about living out there behind that hardware store, if you got there early and got one of them freezer boxes, you could lay down and you could become a snob wino. You'd look at some guy trying to curl up in one of them old TV console boxes and you hell you knew he was better than he was. You know, and then you kind of watch him for a while and you think, you maybe we ought to get rid of him, he's ruining the neighborhood. You know? And we had those cardboard condominium complexes we used to call them. Interesting place, Skid Row. You meet some strange people. I borrowed some money from a finance company. I don't guess any of y'all have ever done that. But and I didn't pay them for 18 months. And I got $472 from them, and I think I owed them 5000 after that. <laughs> but they, they couldn't find me. They were trying to pester my dad and the sister, and they would, they'd cuss them out, you know. And finally a bartender squealed on me and said, go back there and look in that cardboard jungle you'll probably find him in. And uh, I saw a guy back there snooping around one morning with a suit and a tie on. You knew he didn't belong. He kept looking around there, and he could see me sitting in that freezer box. I had a they all racing for him and a pint of wine. He finally got up enough nerve and he came over to where I was sitting at that, in that box and he, he knocked on my box. And <laughs> I opened the flap to let him in and said something I still don't understand tonight. I wonder if I was Jack Sullivan. I said, yes. He said, you know, you borrowed this money from us and never paid a dime on it. Yeah. He said, boy, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't start making some payments on that loan, you're going to be in a hell of a lot of trouble. <laughs> I don't know tonight what he meant. <laughs> you couldn't tar and feather people there, you know. And I knew, you know, I think I knew that I would die there. You know, I had a very good friend who was a psychiatrist and back in those days was a very, very strong advocate of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a wonderful man. And, we were talking one time about suicide, and I'm sure all of you have known somebody who's done it, and you're constantly laboring in your mind what you should have said and didn't or what you did say and shouldn't have, and 
you could have done this or should have done that, and, you know, and you keep coming up with negative answers and all that. And, and Dr. Fultz used to say it's a, it's a state of mind that most people could never understand because you, you reach the very, very, very height of egotism where you don't care about anybody. And at that very same moment, you reach the very depth of depression where you don't care about yourself. And sometimes, somewhere, at some point in your life, the height of egotism and the depth of depression meet, and you will. And that just never occurred in my life. Yeah. And uh, I still don't know why. It was such a hopeless, sick, empty feeling to be living there. On the morning of the 21st day of August of 1962, at the age of 33, I was in the back room of a saloon. The back door of that saloon opened, and my father walked in with a man I'd never seen before in my life. Total stranger to me. And I want my father to see me. I hadn't seen him in a long time. I was a pitiful-looking piece of human flesh. I had long hair and a beard. I was bloated from malnutrition and dehydration. All my teeth had been kicked out. I didn't have any teeth. And there stood my father looking at me, and, and I, I, I felt so ashamed. I, I didn't want to see him, but there was no place to hide. And the guy that was with him came to a table where I sat, and my father didn't come. He pointed me out to this man, and how in the hell he recognized me, I don't know. And he told me later it was difficult. But the guy that was with my dad came to the table where I sat. And he was a very well-dressed man with a suit and a tie on, silver gray hair, smile on his face. He said, hi, my name is Jack. I understand. He said, I've, I'm a friend of your father, and I've come here to help you. He said, I hope you'll let me. I can't help you if you won't let me. But it has nothing to do with Skid Row. It has nothing to do with anything or anybody. We're all in the same boat. I can't help you if you won't let me. But he said, I hope you will. And I looked at him in the strangest way, he said totally dumbfounded by all of this, of course, and finally asked the obvious question, why? why? Why, stranger, would you come to a place like this to see somebody like me that you don't even know? <laughs> why would you do that? He said, I've come here because I used to be like you are, and somebody helped me, and that's why I'm here, he said. I used to be like you are. And somebody helped me. And that's why I'm here, he said. And that's why I'm here. I go to five AA meetings a week in Louisville for the same reason Dr. Bob says he got in the big book. I'll not tell you what they are. You'll have to read them. <coughs> that's why I go. And the reason I'm here is I used to be like you are, and somebody helped me. And without that togetherness, none of us would be here. We all need somebody. We all need each other. He said, come, I've made arrangements to have you admitted to a psychiatric hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, called Our Lady of Peace. Now, back in 1962, you didn't get alcoholics anywhere. Hospitals didn't allow you if you suffered from hallucinations or delirium tremens on the street. The university hospital would take you and see if you lived. If you did, they'd put you back out on the street. They thought people like me were a waste of taxpayers' money. They would do their damnedest to restore you to health and you'd be back in the same boat in three weeks' time. And they were right. And so they didn't want to fool with people like me. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I was not very responsive. I, I had a smart, nasty attitude about most things. 
Uh, and uh, it, w it was a, a neat thing when he was able to get one of the psychiatrists at Our Lady of Peace Hospital to admit me in the condition that I was in. And him and my father took me there that morning at 10.30 in the morning on the 21st of August of 1962. I had finished that little bottle of wine, which up to this point was to be my last drink. Uh, I was in there about a week, and they didn't think I'd live, and I got better and better as things went on, and the medicine helped and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, on the 21st day of August of 1962, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous went in that psychiatric hospital. And it got in there because of this doctor I was just telling you about a minute ago, and a Catholic nun who was an administrator of that hospital who knew about AA. And she'd seen AA in action in a hospital up east in Boston somewhere, and she wanted it in that hospital. And psychiatry at that time was very, very reluctant to allow it. You were always in competition with them. I think it was because this was free. You know, I think it was because they thought we were a bunch of nuts to begin with. You know, uh, you ask some drunk, well, why he? Why did you get drunk? You've been sober now for three months, and things would be going real good for you, and uh, now all of a sudden you're right back like you used to be. What the hell happened to you? And he just looks at you and says, well, it, it just seemed like the thing to do. And you see psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists shaking their head and looking for some psychological explanation for all that kind of stuff, and you see some recovered alcoholic sitting over and saying, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> I mean, they just, they just didn't gee and haw with you. They had absolutely no concept of addressing alcoholism as a, you know, a, as a sickness from a spiritual and emotional and physical standpoint. They had no idea it might be a threefold illness, and they all believed simply that whoever got a hold of you first, that's what was wrong with you. If a minister had you, it was a moral problem. If a medical doctor had you, it was a medical problem. If a psychiatrist had you, it was an emotional problem. And they all looked at it and diagnosed it all that way, and they were all wrong about it, you know. And, and psychiatry was way off base, and I don't say it critically. They just, would, what they believed, they were wrong. They knew that all alcoholics suffered from a Valium deficiency. And if they could if they get your Valium back to their proper levels, you'd be fine. Long before General Electric knew you could live better electrically, they did. Uh, They'd hook those electrodes to your head and buzz you with that juice, and that was to alleviate the depressive ruts of your mind. They came away with a brave conclusion that alcoholics were depressed. And you think, no kidding. <laughs> Some of the crap we get into would depress a rhinoceros. Anyway. <laughs> but that's the purpose of electroshock therapy. You know, it closes the ruts, and you forget, and everything's fine. You know? And so with psychotherapy, volume adjustment, electroshock therapy, maybe a touch of AA from some of them, you're probably going to be a little bit better. You know? But that's just the way that it was. And they put that AA group in there. And on the 28th day of August, I was sitting in a room with another alcoholic lying like hell about all them good things we'd done. Alcoholics undisremember everything they did that was bad. A school teacher told me one time, said, there's no such word as undisremembered. I said, there is if you've been drunk for 20 years. <laughs> and they undisremembered all them bad things. We're talking about them girls they had and that booze they had and them picnics they were on and all them damn lies you can tell one another. You know, and nothing's anybody's fault but them. And if they'd leave me alone, I'd be okay. And you really convinced that's true. And you, 
you know, it's a crazy, mixed-up world. And a, a nurse come back there to me, and she said, don't you go anywhere tonight. We're going to the AA meeting. I said, we're going where? She said, to the AA meeting. I said, AA meeting? What the hell is an AA meeting? I never heard of AA. She said, it's a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous? Are you insinuating that you think I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> and she said, no, I am not insinuating anything. I, I said, well, I'll have you know that I'm no damn alcoholic. And that nurse looked me straight in the eye, and she said, I'll have you know that if you're not one, there ain't any. <laughs> and that didn't set too well, you know. Some years later, when I'm talking to a little 18-year-old kid I sponsor, and he's still sober, and he was, we were talking, he said, I'm no alcoholic, and it dawned on me. Why would he tell me that, and it dawned on me? The same reason I told that nurse that. You know, he's 18, living at home, and I come off a of skid row at 33. Alcoholics are people that have problems they can't handle. Alcoholics are people that need to reach out somewhere to somebody for a solution as to what's wrong with them. Alcoholics are people who are not capable of getting better by themselves. And I was not in that mold. I was thoroughly convinced that if it wasn't for them, I'd be okay. If they would leave me alone, I'd be okay. Everybody has them and they. And the book says you can't separate truth from fiction, and that's exactly the way my life was. I lived in a world of fantasy. Nothing, nothing in reality. I had, I had no idea what the truth was about me. I love that line in A Few Good Men of Jack Nicholson when he screams at Tom Cruise, you can't handle the truth. And I punched my wife in that movie. I said, I wish he'd quit talking about me. <laughs> my life story. In The Phantom of the Opera, the phantom says to the lady, close your eyes. For your eyes will only see the truth. And the truth isn't what you want to see. In the darkness, it's easy to pretend that the truth is what it ought to be. Story of my life. I couldn't see me for what I was. That's total insanity of alcoholics and honest. Everybody around me saw me for what I was. But I couldn't see that. And I want to hear from you, and I want to hear from anybody else. And I said to that nurse, I am not going to any damned AA meeting. And she said, well, take your choice. You go to the AA meeting with me, or I'll put you over there in one of them rooms where the walls are padded, and they have one doorknob on the door, and it ain't on your side. <laughs> now, I'm here to tell you, if you've never been in a nut house, they have architectural defects. <laughs> Some doors have one knob ain't on your side. And I thought, well, I believe I'll go. So I said, all right, I'll go. I didn't want to go. Met a girl in there. <laughs> been her a week. She'd been her a week. Ain't that interesting? <laughs> when you see two drunks in love in a nut house. You go to them treatment centers today, what's left of them, they ain't many of them. See them drunks walking down them hallways holding hands. And 
blinking eyes at each other. And they, they can't wait till they get out of there. And a lot of times they don't wait till they get out of there. <laughs> the only thing I know that's dumber than that is people working there trying to separate. I'm serious. If you work in one of them joints and you've got two drunks in love, you leave them alone. <laughs> if you separate them, they screw up four people. <laughs> They're just kind of meant for each other. <laughs> well, I went back there that night. That nurse had me by my earlobe, a grown 33-year-old macho drunk from 4th and Central. Some nurse taking me down a corridor of a nut house to an AA meeting. And we got at that AA door of a student nurse's classroom, and an old woman was standing in that door, about 60 years old. Her name was Margaret. And the nurse said, Margaret, this is Jack Sullivan. He wants to come to your AA meeting. I said, she's a damn liar. I don't want to come. She's making me come back here. I don't want to come to your damned AA meeting. I don't know anything about AA and don't want to know anything about AA. And Margaret said, now, honey, you calm down. You'll be all right. You come on in, and I think you'll enjoy what you hear. And I know you'll like the people. So just, just kind of calm down. And I think when the night's over, you'll be glad you came. She said, but before you go in, would you like a cup of coffee and a cookie? Now, ain't that a hell of a thing to offer? A macho drunk from 4th and Central, a cup of coffee and a cookie. <laughs> and I'd been in there about a week, and I was feeling rather sprightly. I was thinking about a half pint and a hooker. <laughs> a cup of coffee and a cookie. Well, I went in and sat down, and some old fool got up to talk like I am tonight, and I interrupted him, made an ass out of myself you would not believe. They tried to hush me, and I wouldn't hush. They tried to shut me up, and I wouldn't shut. He rattled, and I rattled, and finally the meeting was over, and I tried my damnedest to get out that door, and before I could get out, that old woman grabbed me, put her arm around my shoulder, and called me, Honey. She said, Honey, you come back next week now. Alcoholics Anonymous needs people like you. <laughs> I thought they ought to put that old broad in a home somewhere, you know. Get her off of the street. I was going back. My doctor made me go. I went back and sat down next to some old man I'd seen there the week before. Hillary Sanders was his name. Hillary said, how you doing, boy? And I thought, ain't none of his damn business I'm doing. I don't even know him. I saw him sitting there last week, but he don't work here. What the hell is in any of his business I'm doing? And then I said to myself, well, you ought to be nice to him. He's old. You ought to be nice to old people. I really believe that tonight. <laughs> I said, I'm doing all right, old man, but I don't damn alcoholic. He said, really? I said, really? They make me come back here. He said, they do. I said, yeah, they make me come back here. I don't want to be back here. You understand that? I don't want to be back here. They make me come back here but I ain't no damn alcoholic. And he said, well, that's good. Well, he said, but I, I tell you what you ought to do. He said, you ought, you ought to talk to your doctor tomorrow and get him to tell you what you are. 
And when you find out what you are, you ought to do something about it. You look like hell. <laughs> and I thought, well, you old... Well, I sit there and listen this time a little more peacefully. And the following week they went back, and I had sessions with my psychiatrist that were interesting. I'm here to tell you tonight that nothing will impress your sponsor. Nothing will impress the people in your AA group once they know you have your own personal psychiatrist. And if you don't believe me, try them. Just go to the group some night and say, well, you know, what you've been saying carries a little weight. But my psychiatrist said, hey, they'll be impressed. They will. I said to that old man, he said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing pretty good. He said, you get along all right? And I said, yeah, I'm doing fine. I said, I learned a lot about myself. He said, well, that's good. I said, my psychiatrist told me today after a lengthy session that I was suffering from a severe and chronic case of denial. And that old man looked at me and said, well, in AA, they would say you're a dishonest, lying little bastard. I got up and moved. Stayed there for... 30 days in that hospital, they sent me down to Western State in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. It was the only place in the state that had a, an alcoholic ward. It was inside of an insane asylum. Western State Hospital, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Ward 19. It was not a very nice place to be. It was very self-defeating. They say you come in AA with very low self-esteem. Try it after being in a nut house where you weren't welcome. That was the first alcohol unit in the state of Kentucky, and the people who were in the hospital were complaining about them drunks being there. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it doesn't do a thing for your ego to walk the grounds of a mental institution. People say, there's one of them. <laughs> Bunch of damn drunks, why'd they bring them here? My uncle was a drunk troublemaker. All he ever was was a damn troublemaker. All them drunks are troublemakers. Why'd they bring them here? There's one of them. And you got to where you didn't even want to go out. But I stayed there for 40 days. And I came back to Louisville, and my father came and got me, took me to my sister's home. I'd lived with my sister once before. And when he brought me back to my sister's house, she asked me if I drank, would I leave? So you stay as long as you want to. They had a beautiful home, a finished basement, a nice bedroom down there. She said, it's yours. You stayed there before. You stay there the rest of your life if you want to, if you don't drink. If you drink, will you leave? And I said, I will. She said, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to argue with you anymore. If you take a drink, will you leave? And I said, I will. And she said, well, your father's coming out here to Monday night, and, and he's going to take you out and buy some clothes at Richmond Brothers, one of the clothing stores. My dad came, and we did that. He charged them to me. <laughs> he did. He said, nobody give me credit. He said, oh, yeah, they will when I sign it at Richmond's. So he opened me account with his signature on it. And uh, I was drawing sick benefits at that time, and he said, you pay them. And he said, tomorrow night I'll be out and get you. That's on Tuesday. 
and we'll have some dinner, and I'm going to take you to Our Lady of Peace to the AA meeting, and Hillary Sanders will bring you home. I said, who? He said, Hillary Sanders. I said, how do you know Hillary Sanders? He said, don't you worry about how I know him. I just know him, and he'll bring you home. So he took me up there, and I said to Hillary, that was that old man, I said, how the hell you know my father? He said, don't worry about how I know your father. You sit down for the AA meeting. I sat down for the AA meeting, and Hillary took me home. He said, George Spencer is going to pick you up tomorrow night. You be out here in this driveway at 7 o'clock. I was out in the driveway, and George picked me up, and he took me to an AA meeting, and, and George dropped me off. And he said, you be out in this driveway tomorrow night, and little Schoenbacher is going to come by here and pick you up and take you to an AA meeting. <laughs> I was out in that driveway, and Leo picked me up. Leo dropped me off, and he said, you'll be out in this driveway tomorrow night, Hillary's going to pick you up. And I thought, what in the name of God is wrong with these damn people? Do they think that's all I have to do? Is to go to these damn day meetings? I have been away for a while, and I have to do some things. And I can't be going every night with them. And they're crazy as hell if they think I can. Now, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> so that next night, I dashed out in the driveway when Hillary pulled up, and I said, listen, I'd like to go with you, but I, he said, get in the car. <laughs> I said, I can't go with you. I have to. He said, get in the car. <laughs> I said, Hillary, you're not listening to me. I have told you I cannot go with you tonight. And he got out of the car and opened the door. And he said, you're not listening to me. Get in the damn car. I got in that damn car. 366 days the first year I was sober in that. Treatment center jargon says 90 meetings in 90 days. Sponsorship jargon says 366 the first year. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought the first step was get in the car. People said, are you working the steps? I said, I guess I got in the car. Well, I went everywhere with Hillary and Jim and Leo and George, and, and they're all dead, you know. And and, uh, and never a day goes by I don't think about them or laugh about them or something that went on. And they would talk about you, and those old guys back then, and, and I'm the same way as a sponsor in Louisville, Kentucky, at my group with my people, don't know nothing else about anything else. They wanted to hear your side of the story. I mean, they'd say, well, Bill made a hell of a talk tonight. All of them around there were speaker meetings. And uh, they'd say, you know, Bill made a hell of a talk tonight. I really liked what he had to say about that first step, about powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of his life, and recognize that, and he got now. You know what took me a while? How about you, Jack? What do you think about that? I ain't powerless over alcohol. Unmanageable life. How you tell somebody that you just got out of a nut house? Yeah. So, I, you know, I sit there and agreed. And I said, but, you know, I'm not... I'm not too much willing to believe <laughs> that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I ain't crazy. 
And Hillary said, well, he's down there at Western State Hospital, wasn't he? He's up here at Lady of Peace Hospital. You met some crazy people. That's not a nice term for those people. Those people are mentally sick. And they cannot do anything within their power to get better. Sometimes medication helps them. Sometimes it doesn't. But they do not have any control over whether they get better or not with that type of biochemical insanity. That's not your problem. The insanity in your life is your own inability to see yourself for what you really are. You know what makes you crazy? Is the fact that you are so dishonest with who and what you are and what your capabilities are. I see everything about you and you see nothing. And he said, I'm going to tell you something, boy. The day they bury you, you will have attained the same degree of sanity as you have of honesty. You will be just as sane as you are honest, and not one damn bit more. And I said, well, where do you find this power greater than you? He said, you're talking to him. <laughs> he said, you stick with me, kid and you'll be all right. Huh? You're going to be a mental heavyweight to figure that out, do you? Hope to God you got a sponsor like that today. I know all them kids that's got me appreciate it. Because all i got to tell them, you stick with me, kid, you'll be okay. Yeah. And that's what he knew. And I said, well, before we go any further, old man, before we do anything else, and before we make any decisions, I want you to know and understand one thing. I do not believe in God. I have never believed in God. I don't propose to start now. And he said, well, who cares? I said, you don't care that I don't believe in God? He said, I couldn't care less. I said, well, how about God? He said, he cares less than I do. But he said, while we're on this subject, let me ask you a question. Why would anybody be interested or concerned in what you believe in? Why would you want to stand there and tell me what you believe in, what you don't believe in? You're a product of what you believe in. You are a product of everything you believe to be good, true, and honest about yourself. And what the hell are you? You're a helpless little kid. It can't do anything about an unmanageable life bordering on insanity without the help of me and God and other people, and you can't even accept that. It's not to God's advantage you believe in Him. It's to your advantage you believe in Him. And it's a sustaining factor in all of our lives when the time comes to accept things you can't change and when you need the courage and the wisdom that go along with it. And when you learn to believe and trust in God and do what you need to do and let us help you what you need to do and let God have the rest, you'll be okay. And when you become to believe in that kind of stuff, then tell me what you believe in because I'd be interested in hearing it. He said, you've already told us what Dr. Fultz told you about fear and the fear of living just in that damn world out there. And Dr. Fultz said it's the strongest emotion in the human body, much stronger than passion. The strongest emotion you have is fear. The only thing known to overcome it is faith, and you have none.
you have none because of what you believe in. And you want to tell me what the hell you believe in? Well, I'm here to tell you that you better change and you better learn and to believe the thing that's necessary and become willing to accept that to change your life if you've decided you want what we have among these people you hang with. And don't you ever forget it. And I went home and gave it a lot of thought, and I never forgot it. I said, but I don't have one of those books. He said, you don't need one of those books. I said, I am, I've been sober nine months, and I haven't got a book, and George Ober's got a book, and he's been sober four months, and he said, I don't sponsor George. I said, but I want a book. He said, you don't need a book. Book makes you think. you got no business thinking. I'll tell you what to do and when to do it. When you need a book, I'll get you one and give you one. And he did after I sober about a year. And he gave me, got a book and gave me one and told me what to read it. And I said, now that I got my book, I'm going to get me one of them things you, that I see them people drawing lines through them, through them books. Where he said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, I see them people in AA. They, they read that book and they come to something that pertains to them. And they get one of them things, whatever they are, and they draw a line through it so they won't miss it. He said, are you talking about a highlighter? I said, yeah, that's what I heard him call them, highlighters. I'll get me a highlighter. And he said, now, now, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You want something to draw through a line in the big book when you read it and it pertains to you. I said, yeah. He said, you want a three-inch paintbrush. Never owned a book with a line in it. Uh, I became willing to do the things that were necessary to make my life better through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I met Gay. We got married. Hillary Centered Al and I. Got my job back with that railroad and did well, and I pursued. Uh, I don't know. For some reason, I had a burning desire to try to understand why people couldn't get paid to be diagnosed as alcoholics back then. And through all those major industries in the city, and I began to work real hard and researching a lot of that stuff with it. And then I finally turned to the labor unions in the city and the state, and uh, we got some things going. And finally, we got maybe after a period of 10 years, there was a lot, a lot of stuff to it, but we, we finally got to where the, the, the benefits were there for people to be put into treatment and diagnosed for alcoholics and, and what have you. And in 1974, 12 years after I got sober, the company I was back working for, the LN Railroad, asked me to start an alcohol and drug abuse program for them to try to help some of the people that worked for us that had been mistreated greatly with threats, you know, and, and misdiagnosis, and so we could once and forever put an end to that kind of stuff. And we had the first employee assistance program in the state and in the city. A lot of the major industries like General Electric and Harvester and Ford, and they followed suit with us, but the Louisville National Railroad Company was one of the first, and it was merged with the Seaboard Coastline, eventually became part of the Chessy system, now the CSX Corporation. I've been gone for 10 years. I, it got too professional for me. I, I couldn't stay, but that's another story. Uh, it took away all of the great things that, that uh, I think that we kind of had done for alcoholism but, but, and for our company. But our chief executive officer died. And so, you know, things change. And just like we were talking today, things change. You know, you can't fight changes. And sometimes you fit and sometimes you don't. And, you know, in the time, the great ability to recognize that and at least have a good sponsor you can share those things with, you know. But our chief executive officer was a man named Prime Osborne. He dearly loved alcoholics. He, 
a lawyer that worked for him, a brilliant man, that he had to fire. He was a bad drunk, and, and he couldn't do nothing with him after eight or ten chances. And finally, the guy got a hold of somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he started going to A, and he got sober, and he died sober. But after being sober for four or five years, he went back to talk to Mr. Osborne, and he wanted him to know. He said, I didn't come back for a job. I come back to let you know about me and, and all the mistakes maybe that were made with me. But I want to tell you about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and Mr. Osborne loved AA. He said he loved alcoholics. They were great, quick thinkers. He said, you know, it, it must be hell to be an alcoholic, to have to live in that state of desperation quickly. You know, and, you know, and he said, it, it's worse for a corporate executive to be an alcoholic because he has to pretend like everything's okay. You know, and it's true. It's a lot easier to be a drunk in a lunch bucket than it is to be a drunk behind a desk because you have to pretend that everything's okay. But he said that lawyer friend of his was an alcoholic, and he said he was a quick-thinking man, and I like people like that. So I had a party at my house one time. He was drunk, and some guys were talking about Alabama and football teams, and he spoke up, and he said, I get sick and tired of hearing about Alabama. Only damn thing ever come out of the state with football players and prostitutes. He said, I tapped him on the shoulder and said, young man, my wife's from Alabama. <laughs> he said, really? What team she play for? <laughs> But anyway, I stayed, and we had a good time, and life's been great. You know, it's all because of this program. I do today. My old sponsor used to say that. Somebody say to Hillary, how you doing? He said, I'm doing fine. I haven't had a bad day since I quit doing things to hurt myself. He said, you want to be happy, don't walk around with self-inflicted wounds. I tried to follow that. Somebody said, what do you do different today, Hillary, 25 years after you got sober than you did when you first got here? And he said, nothing. And I want to do that. And I want to carry the message, and I want to help the sick alcoholic, and I want to constantly be reminded of who and what I am and what I was when I got here and what I can be and, you know, and the difference it is today just because of you. And you taught me how to live, and you taught me how to laugh, and you taught me how to love, and, and you know, the, the love in Alcoholics Anonymous is another dimension in my life. You know, I, I used to wonder how men could tell men they loved them, how women could tell women they loved you, you know. And finally, I realized one day that in Alcoholics Anonymous, whoever you are, if I say I love you, I don't love you for what you are. I love you for what I am when I'm with you. You see, because of you, I'm better. And I love you for that. And maybe in some small way, because of me, you're better. But there's one thing I know. Because of each other, we're all better people. And if we stay together, nobody can defeat that. I believe it was Bill Wilson who said, if Alcoholics Anonymous is destroyed, it will be destroyed from within. And there's enough of the old guard and the middle guard and the young guard to see that that don't happen. Where I come from, and I'm sure where you come from. And I know you know, as long as we keep doing what we're doing, we'll be okay. Thank you for having me.